I guess let's start with like quick introductions. So I know William, I talked to you about my like personal journey, but mm-hmm. you know, I started off, I was raised very religiously. My father, who I mentioned a minute ago, he was actually like a pastor when I was growing up. And what type of church? Uh, non-denominational. Okay, all right. Um, I was a chaplain in Boy Scouts. I was involved with like we had puppets and we would do like puppet ministries. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when I got older, I did um, VBS. I ran a VBS for a church. I was helping out with a youth group at a church. And then uh, somebody, I, I guess I was having this issue where it feels like uh, people in the church don't take the Bible as seriously as I was taking the Bible. And like a lot of people, like, and you could probably attest to this, haven't actually even like read the Bible cover to cover. And it's kind of concerning to me. I was at the time that like, hey, uh, you're saying you believe in this thing. I'm on fire for this thing. Why does it seem like I'm the only one who cares about this? Met a guy who had a similar background, had actually read the Bible, was an atheist, started asking questions, kind of put it under scrutiny. And I eventually, I guess what got me was like, I had issues with the morality of the Bible and then was agnostic for a long time. Did some research in in evolution. It made a lot of sense. Now I'm an atheist. Recently, I've been doing research into the actual like history of the bible which has raised a lot of scrutiny and um that's a lot of the questions i'll be having about today is just like the actual like history of the text but uh how about yourself um i grew up in your i guess your basic middle class family both parents hard workers um, my dad's a carpenter. My mom has worked in a medical office for almost 30 years. Um, handles insurance billing and things like that. Um, highly steeped in sports. I played three sports a year, you know, and um, my dad was my coach up until middle school, so we have a very close relationship. Nice. And, um, but weren't big churchgoers. You know, we were we were the Easter people. We showed up at Easter. and Creaster? Yeah. You know, never Christmas, but no, always Easter, okay. you know, and... Um, it was something that was just part of what we did on Easter. And, and it was, it was an interesting take because I was, I think I was 14 heading into, heading into high school and there was a local store right down the street from my house and we lived in, you know, kind of a suburban area and I was there, I don't know, buying a Coke or something. I don't even remember, but I saw a flyer on the door, you know, three on three basketball tournament at the local church, just like right up the road. And so that was my sport that I picked to play in high school because, you know, I figured I could be decent at all three of these or I could just pick one and just try to get better at that one and see what happens. And so I called up my buddies and they met me there and and we played in the three-on-three tournament and a bunch of middle school kids ended up in the championship against a bunch of high schoolers. And before the championship game, um, the youth pastor just kind of stopped everything and he'd been, you know, building relationships with different people throughout the whole time we were there and, and... he said, I just got, I want to tell you guys a story. And he starts telling a story about a tight end, you know, in high school, you know, a big time college offer. And he was getting ready to sign at University of Tennessee to play football. And um, on the last play of his senior year, a linebacker from the opposing team hit him the wrong way. And this was back in the days when you, you tore an ACL, you were done. Yeah. And 
towards ACL. He's you know, he, he tells the story of the tight end laying in the in the hospital bed, and, and his pastor shows up. And you know, his pastor very lovingly, very gently, just kind of you know talked him through this, prayed with him through this, and just hey, God's not done with you yet, and. There's something more, and I'm going to help you find what that something more is. Well, eventually, God called that tight end into ministry, and at the end of it, He says, "I'm the tight end." Okay. You know, so it sort of kind of blows you away there with the story, and and then He parlays that with, guys, this is what the gospel is, and explains the gospel clearly to us. And I'd heard the gospel several times. Is your basketball coach? Telling you this? No, this was our, the youth pastor. Oh, the youth pastor. Okay. Yeah, the youth pastor at this church. I'd heard the gospel several t- several times and sure. um, knew it was the right decision to make, but it, it just wasn't time for whatever reason. Well, but at age fourteen, that was the time. That was the moment, and and I took it. I, I accepted Christ that day. I was baptized a few weeks later in that church, and I don't think I missed a Sunday or a Wednesday in the next four years. Okay, and got called into ministry, and you know went on to college pursuing that mm-hmm. I spent the last 20 years working with students and absolutely loving student ministry and got to the certain age where a teenager came in and said something it was something like yeet or something like that and I didn't know what it meant for the first time usually I was ahead of that culture but <laughs> at that point I was I was behind and it was like <laughs> oh maybe that's not a good thing so started pursuing that a little bit more as far as what the next step might look like and then God landed us here Okay. And then uh, you said you went to college. What degrees do you have? I have a Bachelor of Arts in Christian Education. Okay. I have a Master's of, Master's of Arts in Christian Education, a Master of Arts in Theological Studies, a Master's of Divinity in Professional Ministries, and a Doctor of Philosophy in Applied Apologetics. Oh, great. I love philosophy. Yeah. So I guess uh, uh, set a baseline. Uh, on a scale of 1 to 10, how convinced are you that the Bible is the inerrant Word of God? 10. All right. How convinced are you that there's overwhelming evidence to prove the Bible's true? I would say a ten. Okay. And then, how convinced are you that you'll that you can like verbally provide the evidence here today? Well, you know, I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer, but I can provide some evidence. No. So I'd say eight-ish or so, something okay. like that. Um. Yeah. So, like, I guess where I'm coming from right now is. Uh, weighing all the evidence, I, 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 you know, everybody is biased to a certain degree, but I try to be as objective as possible. And I think, like, the fact that I change my beliefs often, relatively often, indicates that that I am willing to change at least. And from my perspective, where I'm at right now is I feel like weighing the evidence. If you look at the evidence for and against the Bible, it's in favor of against. So, mm-hmm. like, you know, the Bible says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. I can't just choose to believe in something if I just don't believe it. Mm-hmm. So, uh, what, like, starting off, like, what is something that you would say is an evidence of the Bible? Well, as far as, you know, if we're talking about the Bible or are we talking about Jesus? I mean, we can talk either. Okay. Well, there's no other person I know of that we've marked time by. Okay. So that's pretty significant. So that proves Jesus is a... I, a so person. Jesus is a real person. Yeah. 
Okay. And and if you want to go, you know, extra biblical in that, there's more evidence extra biblical that Jesus was a real person. I yeah. Mean, he shows up in a couple of different holy books, not just the Bible, but the Quran and oh, for you know, sure. other places like that. So, so well, I can agree with you that, like, I haven't seen arguments for or against Jesus being a real person. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can concede that he probably was, or he can, I can concede that he was, uh, but I don't believe, and a lot of the whole Jewish community doesn't believe that he's the Messiah. Orthodox Jews, yes, but not Messianic not Jews. Not Messianic Jews. Yeah. So you know, there, there does seem to be that question. You know, was in fact, you know, did he in fact do what he said he was going to do mm-hmm. in Scripture? Yeah, you know. So and they would say that he didn't because a lot of the prophecies about the Messiah have to do with God coming and delivering them from their enemies, establishing the third temple. None of that mm-hmm. stuff happened. Yeah, but in their view, they're looking at everything towards an end times return. Uh-huh. Not, but not what a, prophecies did Jesus fulfill? Uh, Isaiah. 52, 53, written some 700 What about Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 7? Uh, which part are you referring to? So Isaiah chapter 7, uh, referenced in Matthew mm-hmm. chapter 1. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, like, here's the Jewish argument. The word A-L-M-A, am I, am I pronouncing that right? A-L-M-A-H, Alma. Mm-hmm. If you listen to any, uh, the Jews do not... The, the word translates as young woman. It is always only ever meant young woman. But when they translated the Bible into Koine Greek, they used a word that meant young woman who's unmarried and also a virgin. Like it was a word that had like multiple meanings. As many words do in Greek. Right. You know, because it's a very descriptive language. Right. But the original Hebrew word simply meant young woman for A-L-M-A-H. Okay. Okay. Uh, when they translated over to Greek, the prophecy in Isaiah uh, talks about a woman, a young woman, having a kid. But when it got translated into Greek, it was suddenly a virgin who was having a kid, which led to the belief that the Messiah was going to be a virgin birth. But it's based on a mistranslation from Hebrew to Greek. Mm, I don't know if I follow that completely. I'd have to go dig into more of that, and you know, because that's a very specific one. Yeah, it is know. very specific. But uh, like, no Jews believe that that word means virgin. No Orthodox Jews. But it was only because it was translated into Greek that the meaning got changed to mean also virgin young woman also virgin well the old the new testament was never written in any other language but greek right but the old testament got translated to greek and that's what the for the writers the writers of the new testament would have been reading it in greek not all of them well matthew references isaiah Mm -hmm. and he refers to her the woman as a virgin matthew who if memory serves was a jewish tax collector working for the roman government Okay. Paul, a Pharisee, a Hebrew, but Roman born, uh-huh. would have read Hebrew. Well, let's talk about Isaiah chapter 7, uh, because I don't believe that that prophecy could possibly be about Jesus, whether or not the woman in the prophecy is a virgin. Like, if you, you got your Bible, if you want to pull up Isaiah chapter 7. Yeah, I'm looking at it right now. Okay, yeah. So, like, uh, I'm just going to give a bit of, like, verbal context. There was a... 
the Israel was under attack, or Judah, was it uh, probably Israel, was under attack from two kingdoms, right? And God said to uh, the prophet Oz, Aza, mm-hmm. uh, uh, ask me for a sign. It could be anything. And he said, I don't even need a sign. And God said, I'll give you a sign anyways. A young woman's going to give birth to this kid. That kid's not going to even be of the age to know right from wrong before your enemies are delivered unto you. Is that, would you say that's an accurate summary of the passage? Mm, I'd have to read it again to remember, to refresh. Specifically. Virgin will conceive a son and name him Emmanuel. Okay, so uh we're we're taught, that's, that's very clear who that's talking about. Um, by the time he learns to reject what is bad and choose what is good, mm-hmm. he will be eating curds and honey. Okay. Okay. And then doesn't it say about the enemies being the, delivered from to Israel? Yeah. For the I'm just going to kind of walk through this and read it yeah, real yeah. quick. But for boy, or for before the boy knows to reject what is bad and and choose and chooses what is good, the land of the two kings you dread will be abandoned. The Lord will bring on you, your people, and your father's house such a time as never been since Ephraim, separated from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. On that day, the Lord will whistle to flies at the farthest stream of the Nile and into the bees of the land of Assyria. All of them will come and settle in the steep ravines and the clefts of the rocks and all the thorn bushes and all the watering holes. Okay, so is that prophecy fulfilled hmm that part i'm not sure on because you know again we're talking about a very specific prophecy right you know i'm i'm thinking more along the lines of the isaiah 52 53 passages and and yes both of these are in the same book that particular one i haven't delved into all the particulars of what's there but it's important because it's specifically mentioned in matthew as the prophecy being fulfilled but and, and here's why i'm bringing this up so I, the Messiah of Old Testament, from the Jewish perspective, they think that the Messiah is going to show up and deliver them from their enemies, right? Could you, is that accurate? I would say yes. They're, instead of, you know, the donkey riding into town as a servant king, mm-hmm. they were expecting the king on the white horse. Right. Right. So they think that this Messiah is going to come and deliver them from their enemies. Now, this prophecy could be associated with said Messiah. However... I don't think that the person being born in this passage could be the Messiah because it says that he's of the age where he doesn't know right from wrong. So how could the Messiah deliver Israel from their enemies if he doesn't even know right from wrong? Or is it saying that the Messiah is going to show up before this kid is, let's say, the age of accountability in, in Jewish custom is 13? So... Like my translation, my understanding of this is, hey, this is probably going to happen soon. This lady's going to give birth. And before this kid's 13, you're going to be delivered from your enemies. I don't see how that is even associated. I I could see how that would be a sign that the Messiah is going to come. But I don't see in the context of Isaiah how that person who's not even 13 could be the Messiah. I don't think they're saying he's the Messiah. I think... They're saying, at best, that he's a sign of the Messiah. Well, this was written 700 years before Jesus shows up. Mm-hmm. So you know, it, it could be pointing to that exact time period that before this child is a certain age, then all of this will take place and it's done. So there's so you are thinking that it could have just happened any time 
before Jesus was born. Potentially, because you're, uh, I mean, again, I'm, I'm not the history buff that knows all the history behind a lot of these things going from one thing to another. I know, you know, bigger concepts here. Um, but it seems like what this is almost associating with, and I'm again, I'm just, you know, at, I've read this several times, but not really dug into the history behind it. Mm-hmm. Seems like maybe before the Messiah announces his Messiahship, like Jesus did in his earthly ministry when he's baptized by John the Baptist, mm-hmm. before he does all that, this will have taken place. So sometime between this writing and before he does that, that's when it's going to take place. So you're saying it just happened before Jesus was even born. It sort of sounds like it from the text as I'm reading through it. Again, I'd have to dig more on it to find out better specific answers for mm-hmm. you. But, you know, I didn't know specifically what questions we were going to go with. And this seems like a very specific question. So I got a lot of very specific questions. Yeah. And I wasn't necessarily prepared for every single specific, but I'll give you the best I got. Yeah. I just don't think that. Like, I don't think anybody could be prepared for everything because I just don't think the Bible holds up under scrutiny. Okay. And that's that's okay if that's what you believe. I have actually put it under some fairly decent scrutiny, and I think it holds up. So are you going to look into the word Alma yeah. and the prophecy? Sure yeah. Can I make a list of those things? Is that okay with you? That'd be great. And, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll do my best. And, you know, I can't promise I can answer everyone, but I'll, I'll certainly try. Mm-hmm. So, um, let's see my notes here. Oh, yeah. So, I guess, like, uh, putting it in context, like, like, reframing it. So, my belief is that they, uh, I know, so, like, another issue with that passage and they shall call him Emmanuel, right? Yeah. When, aside from there, in Matthew, is Jesus ever called Emmanuel? Well, Emmanuel, for, for the reasons why, that's obviously connecting back to an Isaiah, God with us, you know, sort of mindset. Mm-hmm. Matthew was written, Matthew's gospel was written with an audience specifically of Jewish nature. Okay. Whereas the other gospel writers didn't write for that specific end. But when else in Matthew is he called Emmanuel? When else following his birth? Yeah. Does anybody ever actually call him Emmanuel? No, because it goes from there to son of man, I believe. So, like, yeah. it also doesn't fill the prof- the prophecy because if he's not called Emmanuel, then how does that fulfill the prophecy? Because he's with you in physical presence at that point. So he is literally God in your physical presence. But he's not literally called Emmanuel. But I, I, don't, see what, I don't see the issue, I guess. Like, if I said somebody's going to be born and his name's going to be Alex and then nowhere is his name ever recorded as being Alex is that Alex well he's also called wonderful counselor here he's in Isaiah himself but he's never called wonderful counselor in Matthew so you don't think that the name Emmanuel is a literal name you think it's just a phrase yeah I think it's a name that means something else a lot like in Jewish culture right like I will call him Cephas which translates to Peter but also translates to rock Okay. Right? So uh, I think there's a couple things linguistically that we are missing in English, and I think you probably mm-hmm. agree with me on this. Our language is pretty terrible in terms of descriptive nature. Okay. You know, for instance, I love cheeseburgers, but I also love my wife. Right. Fair enough. You know, and mm-hmm. so it's harder to think through this in terms of a, a language that we knew, that we grew up with, that we understand, mm-hmm. but then parlay that with a language that for the same word that we they have 10. So you're saying, so like... 
would it be unfair to say that there's an accessibility problem with the Bible for English-speaking audiences? I would say English is a, is a very weak language compared to Greek and Hebrew in terms of descriptive nature. Right. But that does not discount God's Word in that sense, if that makes sense. But if like we're not understanding it to the fullest, wouldn't you have to learn the original language to understand it to the fullest? Oh, it certainly helps. Uh, I mean, you know, as a person who spent plenty of time studying both languages, um, it, it certainly does help with the understanding. But that's also part of the training in which you go through to be a pastor so that you can share that knowledge. So are you familiar with textual criticism? Oh, yes. So what are your takes on that? Uh, I, to me, I, you know, when you get into the, you know, the earlier stuff from like the earlier part of the Bible, you know, the JDP and all that other stuff, I, I really don't think it, it holds up because you're, you're, you're trying to take an entire book that was written by different human authors uh-huh. and trying to find the cohesiveness in it using language alone. And if different writers are writing and contributing... But yet the story remains the same throughout from Genesis to Revelation, which it does. There's a scarlet thread that runs all the way through from I mean, the first mention of the Gospels in Genesis chapter 3 in terms of what Jesus is going to do, in terms of what Satan's going to do. That's Genesis chapter 3.15, I believe, if memory serves. Well, the Jews don't believe in Satan. He's not mentioned in the Old Testament. Uh, Ezekiel mentions the idea of Lucifer, I believe, if memory serves. And the serpent... After looking at the entire scripture, there's no way you can not believe... Well, I say there's no way. I connect the idea of the serpent to Satan himself because in other passages of scripture, it aligns that way. But it is also an implication. Well, the Bible interprets the Bible as far as where I sit. Uh-huh. You know, I don't interpret it. I, I try to let the Bible interpret itself as much as humanly possible because this is the document that is self-authenticating. It, it is the one that backs itself up. And if I just say, well, this is my opinion, uh-huh. you know, it's going to be steeped in some element of reason and some element of, of evidence, but also it's going to be steeped in some elements of faith as well. That's well, the part of belief that, that's challenging. Well, what about the textual criticism of the manuscripts of the New Testament? Um, as far as the changeability of it, is that what you're speaking about? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I still think it holds up. I mean, you, you talk about Homer's work is the oldest that we have outside of Scripture. Mm-hmm. It's been changed nearly... Well, the Epic of Gilgamesh. It's been changed nearly 400,000 times. Uh-huh. The Bible, since you know the earliest copies we have to now, has been changed roughly 4,000 times, and none of those have anything to do with its interpretive value. But if you look at... Uh, 300,000 textual variants among the different manuscripts of the New Testament. Uh, and a lot of those are quote-unquote insignificant, which I'm assuming means like spelling errors or punctuation. Or linguistical, you know, issues that go from one language to another where you translate it in a phrase and it's a little different, but it doesn't change the meaning. Well, this doesn't have to do with... Well, yeah, I guess some of those would have to be with translations. Um, but... Uh, comparative terms, there's more variations in the New Testament manuscripts than there are words in the New Testament. Uh, and then, so like some of them are insignificant, but then like some of them aren't. So like the earliest manuscripts of the New Testament, which should be the most accurate, right? They're 200 AD. The earliest ones we have access to are 200 AD. Um, and they... 
don't contain the story of the woman, the adulterous woman in Matthew, who, you know, who should throw the first stone is not in the earliest manuscripts. And then later on, it appears in more recent manuscripts in a different writing style. Scholars believe it was added in later on based on our evidence of it not being present earlier and the evidence of it being a different writing style and also the evidence that various manuscripts place it in different parts of the New Testament. There's people that put it in different parts of Matthew and there's one manuscript that even has it in Luke because they didn't know where to put it. You, are you, you know anything about that? Quasi familiar with it, but yeah. you know, again, not fresh on my memory, so I'd have to go back and look some more. But I don't think, I don't think there's been any variations or many changes done to it at all that that affect its interpretive value or that affects its integrity. So, like, if there was an entire passage added in, hypothetically, because mm-hmm. you you don't know, you haven't looked into it yet, hypothetically, if they if somebody added in that passage hundreds of years after the Matthew was written. Would that passage, should that passage be there? Hypothetically, or hypothetically speaking, most likely not, unless there's a reason for which the addition took place in terms of, oh, we found a copier older than that, and it showed this in there, so we added it back in. It's not in these earlier copies, uh-huh. but we found it in an older copy. And there, and so I would have to know the reasoning why. And uh-huh. most biblical passages would even have notes that would that could help you chase that down. Okay. So... Uh, would it be concerning at all to you if there was some parts of the Bible, like some, so like, let's say 200 years ago, when those manuscripts were written that don't have that part of the Bible, uh, people don't have access to that story about the woman in the well, right? So versus today where we do have that and it is in our Bibles, one of them is inaccurate, right? Well, at least maybe that passage would be inaccurate. Right. Not the, You can't throw the whole thing out, I wouldn't think. But one of them has an inaccurate passage. Either today we have a passage that shouldn't be there, or back then it was missing a passage. Mm-hmm. How is that inerrant? I don't really know in that, in that particular case, because we do have human authors here mm-hmm. underneath the direction of the Holy Spirit. Uh-huh. You know, that's the way that the text works. And so on those specifics, I'd have to dig in a little bit more. So if, but and, and it, and like emotionally, like if God could author the Bible in the first place, he could also preserve the Bible. Yeah. Which is what I think in Aaron seen infallibility, but somebody either today or in 200 AD, somebody didn't have access to a perfect copy of the Bible. Yeah, assuming what you're saying is correct. Assuming what I'm saying is correct. Uh, so, like, for somebody, God didn't preserve the Bible. Yeah, but let's let's take the whole story, for example. The meta narrative of Scripture. The entire thing. Creation, fall, redemption, glorification, or, you know, sanctification, glorification. Mm-hmm. In that one particular story, even if... Let's say it was added just uh-huh. for the sake of this conversation. Yeah. That one particular story's we white it out. Let's say it doesn't exist anymore. We wipe it off the face of the Bible. Does it change the meta narrative of scripture? Does it change the whole idea of scripture? Here's what it changes the credibility of the scripture. Because if that's wrong, what else is wrong that we don't know about? 
Well, then you assume that everything's wrong because one thing is inaccurate? Shouldn't you hold everything up under scrutiny? Oh, certainly. So I'm, if, I'm just saying, are you throwing the baby out with the bathwater here? I'm saying that the manuscripts that we have from the New Testament are inaccurate to the point that we shouldn't hold them as inerrant. That it's not... Like so, like going back to Homer, you were talking about Homer. It's it's one of our oldest texts, and there's been so many changes to it, right? There's speculation that Homer might not even be a real guy, right? Well, in, in this postmodern world, everything's under scrutiny to the point of erasing from existence. But does it matter if he's a real guy or not? It could be a pseudonym. I mean, to me, it doesn't matter. It doesn't change the fact that it's an entertaining story. Sure. But I don't, I don't hold my whole personal identity in the story of Homer's Odyssey. Mm-hmm. Whereas plenty of people, possibly yourself included, would find issue with the authors of the Bible if they didn't really exist. That would be problematic. Yeah, I mean, much like the Quran being a almost 30% carbon copy of the King James Version. I mean for comparing religious texts and, and holy books, uh-huh. you know, we that's got to be a part of it. And Well, I'm not saying the Quran's any more right no, than the No, I'm not saying that Christian you are. Bible. I, I'm just saying just even under scrutiny, that is, you know, something that you think about when you look at a text, period. Mm-hmm. So, you know, again, that's another specific passage that I wasn't, wasn't prepared to talk about. So maybe the next time you and I talk, we talk about the questions that you want to ask. That way I can maybe be better informed so that I can help you with them. Okay. I mean, fair enough. I, I guess here's from my perspective, though, is that like I could have prepped you in advance. So, so here's the problem. I go to my wife and I say, "Hey, look, there's this issue that I found with the Bible," and she says, "Well, I don't know the answer to this, mm-hmm. but I know someone who does," and she directs me to you. Sure. But here's from my perspective, like I'll do, I'll do all this research, I'll do all this reading. And she says, you're doing biased reading. You don't do any Christian reading, but I'll do a Christian, I'll read something from a Christian source. And it's frustrating because it doesn't feel like their arguments are coherent or accurate or based in reality because they're defending something that I don't see as being defensible. So when she deferred me to you, as somebody who has like a PhD mm-hmm. and bachelor's degrees under the assumption that you would have the answers to these questions. Like, I don't think that you could have the answers to these questions. I can, like I said, I'll do the best I can. Do the and... best you can, but I don't think anybody can. Like, I just don't think it's a defensible position. Okay. So, well, and, and that's, you're certainly entitled to that opinion. Of course, no one's trying to change your mind. That's not what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to be helpful and answer your questions. Yeah, I just don't think they can be answered, though. I, I don't know. I mean, let me do some digging and see what I can find because I have access to a lot of information. You know, the, the Internet's not the, really the greatest source, but sometimes there's some things there. And I can always have people in my life that have been doing this a whole lot longer than I have that I can ask, and we can go back and forth. But, you know, in just the first couple of questions, you've asked me about two very specific passages. Yeah. So... Out of 66 books in the Bible, we're talking about two very specific things. But so, they're important. Absolutely. I'm not, I'm not discounting their importance. I'm just saying I'm thinking on a whole other level as far as the questions that you're going to ask me based upon conversations that I had 
Were you thinking more broad stroke questions? Yes, yes. That's that's what I was thinking, and so, and that's where my brain was the mm-hmm. entire time before this you know interview started. So, and and then you're like, well, I've got a list of questions. I'm like, great, fire away. We'll do what we can. So I, I wasn't aware they were going to be this specific. What about the genealogies of Matthew and Luke? Are you familiar with those? Mm-hmm. You you familiar with how they're not the same? Yes, on okay. on purpose. And what's the justification for that? The audience is different. So Joseph has different lineages based on the audience. No. No, they're not different lineages in, in that particular case because Matthew's written to the Jews, remember? Uh-huh. Okay? And if you look at the lineage, where does his go? Where does his start from? Uh, from Abraham to Jesus. Yeah, because uh-huh. it has to run through a Jewish line, right? And you have to, and David's in there because that's a really important prophecy to fulfill, uh-huh. isn't it? You know, son of David, son of man, son of God, all those are the same. Mm-hmm. Luke is written to the Gentiles. Okay. And his genealogy goes back to Adam, uh-huh. to all men. Yep. Right, and this is everyone that's not a Jew ethnically, and everyone that's also outside of God. So the audience is different. So yes, the genealogy is going to be scoped a little different to prove the same point. I don't understand how the genealogy could be different in terms of Joseph having two different fathers. I don't know that Joseph did have two different fathers. But if you look at Matthew and Luke, he's got two different fathers. There was something there though around that idea. I can't remember exactly what because this question's come up before with me, and I, I remember there's. There is an explanation for it. Like, why is that? And I, I just can't remember off the top of my head what that is. Also, so, so Matthew has 41 people between Abraham and Jesus. Mm-hmm. Luke has 56 people between Abraham and Jesus. That's not including the other people that came before Abraham. It, I think the total comes out to 76 if you include starting out from God to Abraham. Mm-hmm. So, like, they're just not the same. They're not the same number of people. They're not the same people. Uh, some people think that that it has to do with one of them is Mary's genealogy even though it explicitly says both of them are, are Joseph's. And the reasoning is that has to do with some like complicated Hebrew law that has to do with if Mary, let me think, if Mary's father didn't have any sons and he could claim Joseph in his lineage, uh, which begs the question then which one is Joseph's lineage and which one's Mary's because it doesn't specify. And if both of them are Joseph's, then it doesn't make any sense because... Jesus is not Joseph's son, right? And if either one of them is Mary's, it doesn't make any sense because uh, the king Jeconiah was prophesied to never have any of his descendants prosper or sit on the throne. And if Jesus is a descendant of Jeconiah, then he can't fulfill the prophecies. Potentially, but I, I, when you said Jewish law, that that's triggering something a little bit there. That yeah, there was something in terms of describing genealogies that is a little bit different than what you and I would think. Direct lineage, family tree, you know, kind of ideology. So uh, I'm I'm certain a guy by the name of Josephus could help us with that. He's a Jewish historian. I think I've got I see that over your left shoulder there. You know, sitting on the, and I believe I remember reading something out of that to help us explain this one. 
uh, not to excuse it away, but actually this is why it went like this, if okay. I remember. And, and just some of the details are fuzzy because obviously, I mean, I, I read quite a bit. And so I'd have to go back and dig on that one for sure. Well, these are great questions, man. I really appreciate you bringing them to me because this, this, is, this is stuff I love doing. Cool. Me too. Um, so it's mostly been me asking questions. Do you have any, like, proof you can present of the accuracy of the Bible? Well, let's let's think about that for a minute. You know, just the the accuracy of the Bible. Um, let's just take history and think about you know, obviously with Jesus being a person that was named in time, and you're not even discounting the fact that Jesus existed. So I can accept Jesus existed. Yeah, it's not a problem. I think that one's an easy one. But then we look back at just the archaeological evidence of certain things, like okay. how how accurate is the Bible? Well. Archaeologically, they have discovered remnants of Sodom and Gomorrah buried some 75 feet below the Earth's surface. Okay. So rewind the tape back to Genesis, and and according to the story, God decimates that town. Uh-huh. Both of them. Okay. And you find archaeological evidence 75 feet below the Earth's surface. That's a pretty big decimation, as in completely crushed the town and nothing left. You've got that But, part. like, the Epic of Gilgamesh talks about the flood that's also mentioned in Genesis that doesn't mean everything that happened in the, that doesn't mean you believe everything that happened in the Epic of Gilgamesh no but you also have flood evidence right you have water based you know animals in desert like climates you know you, you, we find dinosaur bones of you know dinosaurs that were obviously aquatic in their nature they had fins they had tails they had all these different things in desert like climates how did that happen you have many other archaeological signs and I mean we, we can just keep going on and on and there's on there's plenty of archaeological evidence to prove evolution too there's gaps in the fossil record that don't really match in my opinion there's also the geological column that has some issues with it there's several other points of evidence carbon dating there's all kinds of things that are not quite where they need to be in order to completely prove that more than a theory but and, it doesn't have to be Proven as scientific law, it just has to be the best source of information we have. If there is to be believable, yeah. If there is one well, that, that piece, directly contradicts your first premise of no, the understanding of hear me out. scripture. Because if there's enough evidence for scripture, shouldn't we believe that? No, no, listen, listen. If there are is one piece of evidence in favor of evolution, right? Theoretically, say there's one piece of evidence in favor of evolution, and there's zero pieces of evidence in favor of creation, then. The thing with the most evidence, the most believable thing would be evolution. Now, I happen to believe there's more than one piece of evolution, one piece of, ev- of evidence in favor of evolution, but I'm not seeing any proof of creation anywhere. It doesn't matter if there's gaps in the fossil record. If there is some fossil evidence that shows evolution, then that's something. That's better than nothing. It doesn't have to be a perfect model for it to be the best working model. Well, how is there no evidence for creation? What is the evidence of creation? Well, there's many different arguments we can get into, and I use that term argument, not like an actual argument. I mean, like a philosophical argument. Yeah, yeah. Right? There's there's a cosmological argument that argues the existence of the cosmos, right, and where it actually came from. Okay. There's and, also the Big Bang Theory. Yeah, there is, but if you want to go on that route of, you're going to have to have faith to pull that one off. I, quite frankly, am not at the point educationally where I could even understand the Big Bang Theory. So, Well, and I, I'm like you, nor would I, but it, it, it really boils down to the understanding of 
there would have to be a perfect storm of particles. There would have to be perfect definition of everything coming together at the same time in the exact same moment in order to explode in the exact same fashion. And then out of something, something else is created. But who put the something there? Well, I mean, if we're going to argue with something has to be there, then we're talking about an infinite regress. Because if God was the something that put it there, Mm -hmm. then God had to exist before something put him there. Or did God, was there a God that made that God? So if we're going to argue that there had to be, like, let let me, just to be clear, like, if it's possible for God to always have existed, then it's possible for anything to always have existed, right? Not necessarily. What do you mean? Well, because before God, there was nothing except but, God. But why could God always exist and not everything else? Why not? Well, then the universe could also just always have existed. Mm, Maybe. I think that's a stretch. The, the universe keeps having a big bang and then the the universe ends and then there's another big bang over and over again what if there's just an what so like you're saying like the odds of it even happening are super low but if there's an infinite amount of time you don't need high odds for something to take place if there's infinite amount of time the murphy's law takes place if it can happen it will but then thermodynamics kicks in okay you familiar with thermodynamics familiar with thermodynamics you are yeah okay what about laws one and two what about them well, what you're saying can't really take place with laws one and two, correct? No. Uh, so, like, first law of thermodynamics is remind me the exact wording of it here. Yeah, let's go to the, let's go to the interwebs. Because if you're talking about the uh, entropy, entropy has to do within a closed system. And if you look at entropy in terms of the universe, we do have the heat death to, of the universe okay. to worry about. First law, energy cannot be created or destroyed. It can only change form. Yeah. Okay. Second law, uh, for a spontaneous process, the, in, the, the entropy, what you're talking about of the universe, increases. And the third law, a perfect crystal at zero Kelvin has zero entropy. I'm not sure. The third law is not really what we're talking about. So, yeah, the... First law, energy never changes, uh, is created or destroyed, it only changes form, would fit into my, squarely in my argument that if God could always exist, then the universe could always also always exist. Not necessarily, because what if God was the creator of energy? Which, in, crea- in the creation narrative, you know this, right? That he spoke things into existence. That that have to be a ultimately powerful God. Now, transition that thought from the creator of the cosmos, right? And I don't know if you've read... Uh, much of William Lane Craig, he does a lot of work on a specific portion of the cosmological argument called the Kalam. Okay. That's kind of been his specialty. And he's obviously way smarter than me and goes into a lot of the science, goes into a lot of the understanding of, well, this is what science tells us, and that doesn't even match up with this particular narrative. Now, let's transition from the cosmological argument to the argument for design, the teleological argument. Okay. Right? Like... If, in fact, Big Bang did happen, then it would have to be so incredibly precise and so incredibly fine-tuned, it would almost have to be an intelligent designer doing this whole thing. Because you look at our planet, if our planet tilts one direction or the other off of its axis, half the planet burns, the other half freezes. Right. The sun is the perfect distance away from this planet to sustain life. Okay. 
there's a perfect balance of mixture of, of particles in the air that you and I are breathing right now to sustain life. Okay. So how is it that random chance can produce precision? Uh, just by pure statistics. If you look at, like, Murphy's Law, if it can't happen, it will, essentially, is Murphy's Law, then if you have an infinite amount of time and an infinite amount of planets, then it only has to happen once. There only has to be one planet, like this planet, for us to be here having this conversation. And obviously, it did happen, so that's proof enough for me. Well, but if you go out on that limb and just use Murphy's Law as that much power in terms of your belief system, why believe anything at all? Because anything can happen. What do you mean? Well, I mean... If it can't happen, it will has to do with statistical probabilities. Yes. So, like, if there's a less than 1% chance that the universe, that life could be created on Earth, but you have an infinite amount of time, then it will happen. No matter how low of a percentage that chance is, if there is the slightest percentage of a chance that something could take place and you have an infinite number of time, it will take place over the course of that time. Then will it be sustainable? What do you mean will it be sustainable? Well, how does... Uh, I mean, to use the evolutionary theory here, how does one organism continue to evolve into millions of organisms that all are created differently with different purposes in mind with different ends and different means and even if there is infinite time and even if there is Murphy's Law and it, a species doesn't change species it stays the same well if you look at the fossil record it does yeah assuming that that's true which I'm not of the belief that it is what do you believe is the situation with the fossil record well there's there's different veins of this, right? We could talk, you know, well, is it adaptation? You know, that's a scientific term, right? From mm -hmm. one species adapting to where its environment is and changing. Or Which, so, so, just to be clear, you can agree in adaptation that it's real because we can observe it. Daily. No, I just stated that. Do you agree with it? I didn't say I agreed with it. You don't agree that we can view, like, variation in species? I think there's some elements of that that are that look really nice. Okay, so but I like, also think that God created each species individual, and maybe there is something to that. I'm not sure how convinced I am. What about dogs? We have, like, historical record in the last couple hundred years within human history of us, like, functionally creating all these different dog breeds that just didn't exist, like, a thousand years ago. Sure. I think Boston Terrier is one of them, right? Right. That, that humans It became, created. like, a fad in France, like, make different breeds of dogs. Mm-hmm. So that shows that species can change at least within their own species, right? Did, but we changed it. But it can Correct. happen. I mean, we didn't change it any more than we just, like, encouraged different breeds to breed together. But we're still talking about a dog. I'm talking about a dog. Yeah. I'm saying we're that... Not, we're not taking two dogs and turning it into a giraffe. No, no, no. I'm okay. saying we have proof that there can be change within species, right? If you say so. I mean, do you not agree with that? Do you not agree that the Boston well, Terrier didn't exist a thousand years ago? It depends on what we have to define as change. So I'm speaking about changes in one species changing completely to another. Right. And I know you don't believe that. Yeah. But I just want to ask, do you believe that a species can change and stay the same species? Have different characteristics, but maintain... Yeah, it's still a dog. Right. I mean, it's still a dog in terms of it can still breed with other dogs, right? That yeah. determines when it's not a new species. But it is drastically different characteristics than other species, right? 
Drastically is a strong word. No, no, sorry. sorry. <laughs> you don't think that a Boston Terrier is drastically different than a German Shepherd? Drastically, no. It's still a dog. But it does the same things dogs do. It would, it, the German Shepherd will do different things than the Boston Terrier will do, but it's still a dog. It's still a dog in terms that it can reproduce with each other. Yeah, it has different colors. I mean, I'll, I'll give you all those kinds of things. Yeah, different nuances and things like that. But at grassroots, it's still a dog. So you don't think there's a big difference between, like, a Border Collie and a Chihuahua? Oh, yeah, there's a difference between them, but they're still dogs. Okay. And bred for different reasons, right? One has a herding capability. Uh-huh. The other one is usually great at getting into rat holes and digging out for rats. Is that what they're good for? Yeah. <laughs> I think so. Other than, that, other than that, the one I have just barks all the yeah. time. So. so, so yeah, I understand you don't believe in change in species, but yeah. you can believe that a species can change variation within the same species. I mean, that's the theory, isn't it? That That's sort of the theory of adaptation. Uh-huh. And And I think when people looked at the human landscape, even when this was being written up as a theory, Mm -hmm. you could even see some form of that in terms of, you know, Asian people built certain ways, right? I mean, if you want to look at, just look at skin tone. People that live closer to the equator have a darker skin tone. Yeah, and I think that's what people saw, Mm -hmm. you know, when they looked at it and and thought, well, yeah, that's got to be true. And, And just started, you know, thinking about it out loud or maybe even on paper, however it is they were communicating back then. And so... Do I think there's some validity to that? I don't know. Maybe, but that's also a Tower of Babel conversation. How is the Tower of Babel conversation? Well, don't you remember the Tower of Babel? Oh, so you think that genetic variance came from the Tower of Babel? I think it very well could have happened at that point in time. Confused languages, you know, changed everything at that moment and sent people in different directions to occupy different parts of of the world. So, And it just happened to work out that the people with the darker skin tones lived closer to the equator? I mean, you're around the sun more. It makes more sense that your melatonin would bubble up to the top and, and, and turn your skin different tones. Yeah, that's change. That's adaptability. Well, or is it just cause and effect? I mean, yes. So, like, like, I mean, let's look. And at, it doesn't change the fact that it's still a human being. I'm not trying to argue that yet. I'm just saying that <laughs> I think you believe that there can be change within the same species. That a species can have different characteristics and still be the same species. Maybe. 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 So, I mean, it, de- it depends on how you define those terms, right? I mean, everything boils down to definition. Okay. Let's talk about it in terms of uh, humans migrated out. We is, is it controversial to say that humans originated in the Fertile Crescent? Originated? Um... Yeah, I think most biblical scholars, somewhere right around in there, we'll, just, we'll use that vague area. Yeah, sure. and then from there, we're everywhere, right? Eventually moved everywhere, yes. Eventually moved everywhere. Yeah. But if you look at, like, it, uh, so, like, the Vikings up in Nor- Norway, mm-hmm. they notoriously, like, blonde hair, blue eyes, super light skin, right? <laughs> People that stayed in the Fertile yeah. Crescent. Like looking in a mirror every day. <laughs> <laughs> People that stayed in the Fertile Crescent like dark skin right like if you look at uh somebody who's of african-american african-american descent who living in the u.s not even going to necessarily have dark as dark of skin as somebody living currently in africa some sometimes they do sometimes they don't but like so say an even mix of people of black people and white people move to each place so the the black guy going to norway he's not going to get enough vitamin d in Norway, where the sun is not present as often. 
So he's not going to like live as successfully and be able to pass on his genes and he's going to die off. But the blonde hair, blue eye people, they, they're perfectly adapted to live in that environment and thrive. Whereas the super white guy who goes and lives on the equator, he's just going to like burn to death. He's just going to get really bad sunburn and, and not be successful and not pass on his gene. Is, okay. Okay. That that's the variation in the same species. But we didn't vary anything. We just stated sort of a genetic idea, didn't we? Yeah. It, but because I mean, I, 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 let's just use me as the example. We were yeah. talking about the Viking, the light skinned blue blue eyed blonde hair. Mm-hmm. I've lived near the equator. Okay. Uh, you know, for five years. Yeah. And ended up with skin cancer. Yay. Okay. So So, you could agree that it's not advantageous for somebody of your skin tone to live in the equator. Well, sure, but that's a genetic issue. So over the course of thousands of years, the people that look like you aren't going to thrive down there as much as the people that are of a darker skin tone. Or would I adapt? would Would my genetic information adapt over time? You personally? No, or my specific genetic information passing it down from one generation to the next. Would that change over time so that I could thrive? It could if you had the right wife. If you married somebody with dark skin tone and your kids would genetically be halfway between you two, right? Yeah, but that's still, that's sort of the gamble of it, right? That's sort of the risky part that we don't, a variable that we don't have. Okay. What do you mean? In other words, well, you're saying that if this happens, like if I, I, my wife was of that particular descent to where it could pass on and be successful, yes, it would. That would be the cause for change. It would be the cause, yes, but yeah. it wouldn't necessarily determine the necessity for the change. No, the necessity for the change would have to do with the sun beating down on you. Yes. So people that are... People that are already more adapted to have a darker skin tone are already more adapted to the sun, right? Functionally. So they have the advantage. In that particular arena, yes. So their genes would be more successful. Their descendants would be more successful. And if we're looking in terms of like ancient times where people are just killing people, then they're just going to wipe out anybody who is... uh, we disadvantaged. Depending upon how you determine all of those things, disadvantaged and all that different stuff. So anyway, a lot of this is theoretical in that sense. Is it theoretical that there's change within the same species? Well, every scenario we've brought up here has been theoretical. Not dogs. But it's still a dog. It's the, still a dog. I'm not arguing that. Is there a change in that species? Yes, there is a change in that species. So you believe that a species can change and still be the same species? As far as modifications in color, tone, size, all those... Well, yeah. I mean, I think that's kind of obvious. Okay. At that, that part. That's all I was asking you to concede on. Because the whole Charles Darwin's uh, origin of species, he's just observing change within species. Is it? It's, it that's he, all it is? <laughs> he started off observing change within species on the Galapagos Islands. Different birds had the same bird, the same bird species had different lengths of beak depending on what food was available. And the the hypothesis that became the theory of evolution is that 
eventually over the course of millions of years there could be a change within species but it's a, such a gradual process that we can't observe it observe it in our lifetime but we could observe it through the fossil record so but you can't do that also because there's too many gaps there's not too many gaps i if i can recommend a book uh i sure can. uh i recommend you check out uh, Daniel Lieberman's History of the Human Body. Lieberman, I think I've seen this. L-I-E-B-E-R-M-A-N. Okay. That's what convinced me because I didn't believe in evolution a year ago. And I read that and he makes a very compelling argument. Well, then what do you do with intelligent design? Oh, but I mean, so so let's talk about intelligent design. Like, would you say that your computer is sitting on your desk right there that is intelligently designed? Well, somebody put some thought into it, so yeah. All right. But the person who made that would, by necessity, have to be more complicated. Like, the human brain is more complicated than that computer, right? Mm-hmm. So, therefore, whoever designed humans would have to be more complicated than humans, right? Yeah. So, therefore, he would have to be intelligently designed. That's a big leap. How is that a big leap? You're saying that you're too complicated that you would have to be intelligently designed. And I'm saying that God's more complicated than you and would have to be intelligently designed based on that logic. Yeah, but that's a flawed logic. It's a flawed premise because there has to be one involved in this whole idea that had more knowledge than anyone else and it had to be God. Why couldn't God have a God that made him? Why can't he not have one? Why couldn't the universe just have existed? Well, those questions don't really make much sense. How do they not make sense? Why do you think you have to be intelligently designed? Let me ask that. Why do I think intelligent design works? Why do you Why do you believe intelligent design? What's the logic here? Everything's too precise. Okay. I mean, I don't think statistically random chance, no matter how long you string it out in terms of an infinite time, works like this does. But I'm not willing to, to sacrifice the thought life that, it, oh, it's all just random chance and we're all just here for a moment and then that's it. We're gone. And we're just a blip on the radar. Why is that problematic thought? Well, because ontologically, we're designed for so much more than to be a placeholder, aren't we? Are we? I would think so, yeah. Because what's the, I mean, other, other than that, we all just end up being full-blown nihilists where nothing matters. Uh, nihilism is one way you can look at it, or you can look at, there's plenty of philosophies. There's, uh, Epicurus made a really good argument that you should live your life in order to make yourself the happiest, which isn't the same as hedonism, uh, because Epicurus thinks that like things that make you happy are like family. And what you should do is like treat your family right. So they'll hang out with you and that'll make you happier in the long run. Like there's philosophies to live your life to be fulfilling without having to be a nihilist, but Nietzschean philosophy isn't Nietzschean nihilism isn't exactly what people think of when they think of nihilism anyways. Nietzschean nihilism has to do with the, like uh who's that guy in Greek mythology who has to push the boulder infinitely in hell? You are you familiar with him? Yeah, but I can't recall his name. Yeah, I can't think of it either. But <laughs> but Nietzsche's like in Nietzschean philosophy, he thinks that even though that guy has to push the boulder up the hill infinitely, he's actually happy because he knows what his purpose in life is. It's to push that boulder up the hill. And it's the idea of 
if nothing's has meaning you could still create meaning so if there is no god it doesn't mean it's the end of the road for us like you could still make your own meaning and you could still have a fulfilling life i have a fulfilling life it's either your cogs in a machine or nothing matters and so what if nothing matters in the grand scheme of things i'm happy are you i'm very happy i'm i promise you that i'm happier as an atheist than i was as a christian where i was a little bit angry why are you angry as a Christian? Uh, because the God's God's always condemning people. Like, always? Like gay people. God hates gay people. Does he hate gay people or does he hate homosexuality? Well, I guess you could make the argument either <laughs> way. But I mean I don't hate gay people. I think I think hating anybody's wrong. Sure. Even if they're wrong. I, I think that's not the picture I get. When I look at Jesus. No, not Jesus, but the Old Testament. And, like, if you were able to separate the Trinity, like, the Trinity is not explicitly stated in the Bible. It's implied, and uh, it, it the, the Trinity came out, like, the official, like, terminology was something that the Catholics invented hundreds of years later. But if you were to say Jesus and God are two different people, that what makes way more sense to me like i can vibe with that but uh the the fact that like one day he's like wiping out entire nations and saying he's gonna rip up the the he's prophesying about when pregnant women getting their stomachs ripped open and then the next day he's like oh we shouldn't stone this lady and he says i'm the same yesterday today and tomorrow it doesn't really gel with me. Well, that's in, you know, immutability, and that's that's part of the unchanging part. But here's the funny thing that I've noticed about God is that God is like you and me in terms of the image part. That, that It's very clear on that, you know, that we do have his image. But there are certain characteristics that God has that we'll never have. Like? How can God be, I mean, just in the scenario you brought up, how can uh-huh. God be wrathful but yet then be loving and still be unchangeable? Yeah, it's an inherent contradiction. Well, sort of, but God can feel all of those emotions at the same time. Okay. Where you and I can't. Okay. Like you I, think that's a I good thing that he's wrathful sometimes? I can't love my wife and hate her at the same time. Right. Just like you can't yours. Right. Right? But God, in God-like fashion, right, uh, can be wrathful towards a people group that is inherently sinful, inherently gone against him, inherently you're bullying his people, or whatever the situation in the Old Testament we're really talking about, right? Because sure. I know that's kind of broad. Yeah. But yet also be loving towards his own people, towards the people that call him Savior, but you know, New Testament-wise, and, and those kinds of things. because And that, to me, feels so unhuman-like. Okay, yeah. You, you know, because that's where the the shift of the terminology of love is going. Well, well, love is accepting everything. And I'm like, wait a second. That's not really love because love has boundaries. You know, you didn't get married to your wife and say, well, I'm going to love everybody's wife because I'm married to you. Right. You got married to that one woman. Uh-huh. You, you know, so that's the boundary. Yeah. You know, so it, it seems like we've, we've pushed it so far away from what it actually is. And, and, and even God in his infinite wisdom we can't understand everything about God. I wish I could some days. Mm-hmm. 
uh, but I just can't. But, like, so you're saying that, like, all these things are true and it doesn't make sense and you're okay with that? No. No, I, I'm saying my worldview is the more consistent, the more coherent of any of the worldviews that we've been talking about here. We've been kicking around the idea. We haven't said the actual term terminology worldview yet, but okay. we've been talking about naturalism in terms of evolution and nihilism and all those different isms. Uh-huh. We've been talking, we, we haven't really talked much about transcendentalism, right? That's the world as we want it to be. Okay. And we've been basically going back and forth between naturalism and theism. Yeah. And we brought up different points about, you know, you went into some very deep details on some textual stuff, which we'll get to the next conversation we have. And... I've gone into, okay, here's some arguments, you know, that, that they're not really proofs, but they're ideas to lean you closer to the cosmological, the teleological, the ontological okay. arguments, you know. And so we've been essentially talking about two different worldviews here. Okay, yeah. Yeah, sure. Makes sense? Yeah. Okay. I'm saying the worldview system that I have is the most coherent, is the most, it holds itself together. It has validity. Versus How, though? Well, we, how does it make the most sense? How does it make because every human being has a moral fabric, correct? I think that most people are. Well, every human being has a moral fabric, correct? Wait, define that. Well, I'm asking you. No, define. What do you think? What do you think? Could you define what you mean by moral fabric? Sure, and a sense of right and wrong. I think that every human being has what they think is right and wrong. But it's not necessarily the same for each person. And I'll give you a great example of that. In our country right now, it's it's a pretty, I mean, they've already moved on from it. But it was a pretty hot topic a few weeks ago, Roe v. Wade getting overturned. Sure. Some people morally believe that it's wrong to kill babies. And some people morally believe that it's taking away women's rights to mm-hmm. not let them kill babies. Yeah, you've heard politicians on both sides. Even, you know... Democrats have said, I don't agree that we don't need we don't need to be killing babies, but I also don't want to take away a woman's choice. You've, right. I've heard it from both sides. So morally, there's two sides that that have strong morals that do not agree with each other. Yeah. So I believe that everybody I believe that everybody from their perspective is good. Everybody thinks they're the good guy in their own story. Nobody Thinks like I'm. Boy, I can't wait to go do evil today. So all human beings are created good. No, I think everybody thinks they're good. But is is something wrong rationally with that idea? Can everybody really be good? I'm not saying everybody's good. But they think they are. Yes. But somebody's got to be wrong in that argument, right? Correct. Okay. I believe in moral relativism. If we're going to be frank, uh, but it's like nailing jello to the wall. Nailing down to the wall. <laughs> uh, so, but I think you believe in moral relativism too, and I can prove it. So, say you are in Nazi Germany, World War Two. Okay, you're you're harboring Jews because that's the right thing to do. Germans knock on your door. Hey, are you harboring any Jews in there? Is it wrong to lie to the Nazis at this point? Well, if we go back to the Old Testament, somebody lied about somebody else to protect them, didn't they? And All God, right. And God actually rewarded that. So moral relativism, sometimes it's okay to lie. I would say if we're talking about that specific situation, which in this case, very hypothetical, because we're not in Nazi Germany. Somebody was. 
Yeah, but we're not. We're not. We're not. Okay, so I I don't know. A murder, an axe murderer knocks on your door and asks where if your kids are home. You going to tell that guy, oh, they're right over here to come take my kids? No, I might have other information for him. Um, they might be home, but no, you're not going to see them. But you, you know, agree that case. there's an instance in the Bible where somebody lied and it was okay. No, I'm saying that's how God did, dealt with it. I'm not saying it's okay. God thought it was okay. But for what reason, though? I don't know what reason. You're the one who brought it up. Yeah, but you were talking about the same instance in the same story, and I know your brain was headed there, too. Moral relativism. That's the reason. Well, but is that really workable in the grand scheme of things? Why can't moral, why can't moral values be objective instead of subjective? Because we don't live in that world. We don't live in a perfect world. Well, sure, no. Absolutely. So sometimes it's okay to lie, and sometimes, apparently, it's okay to kill people. If but, it's war, it's okay to kill people. Well, just war. Not just that. war, capital punishment, too. Old Testament. Old Testament and also the U.S. government. Yeah, but we're not talking about that part. I mean, that I think, bless their hearts, U.S. government's got enough issues on its own without us attacking it, to be very honest. But there has to be somebody, there has to be something outside of us to help us determine morality because then how do we know the difference? How do we know when it's right? Because we don't. That's my point. So then we'll have morals all together. I... Which you know we have. Do, do we... When you're saying we all have a moral fabric, yeah. you are saying that we all have the same morals. No, I'm saying we have a moral fabric. We understand what is right and what is wrong. Do we, though? Because yeah. people are arguing for abortion and against abortion, they can't both be right. But sure. somebody... But both sides believe that they're right. Both sides believe that they're taking the moral ground. Well... Adolf Hitler believed he was right. Yeah. Come on. Okay. So Belief in being right doesn't make you right. But you're saying that everybody has the same morals. No, I'm saying everybody has a moral fabric. Okay. It's different. What does that mean? Well, it means everybody has some degree of understanding to what is right and what is wrong. Okay. Would you agree with that? I, but... Like, for instance. But okay. they're not the same. No, they're not. But you have a moral fabric. Okay. Follow me? I follow you. Okay. Like, for instance... If I just felt like it was okay for me to stand up and smack you in the face right now, mm -hmm. I just felt it was right. I believe it's right. Okay. But then I did it to you, what would you say? Was that right or wrong? I'd say that's wrong. Is that yeah. how you're feeling about me right now? <laughs> no, not at all. Not at all. I'm, I'm just no, saying this I to prove a point. Just giving you a hard time. Yeah, because just because I felt like it was right or just because I might even believed it was right doesn't mean it was actually right because even when the harm's done to you, you believe it was wrong. Correct. And for the sake of that particular analogy, that would be wrong. Uh-huh. Okay, even in my for my moral fabric, I believe that to be wrong. Yes. So which one of us is right? Uh, Something outside of you and me had to determine what what was right and what was wrong and help us with that. We have some sense of right and wrong, uh -huh. but something outside of us has to be the ultimate determining factor. Yeah, and in historically, uh, anthropologically, it is. Uh, buddy, keep buddy Mike keeps recommending this book. Guns, germs, and steel. <laughs> because... And who has the most wins? Yeah. Uh, it basically, like, you look at the Native Americans. Was it moral for the U.S. government to uh, come here and absolutely destroy them? No. Oh, but, certainly not. But nobody was stopping them. So they won. They established their government. And then we made laws to protect ourselves. Like, hey, you can't smack me anymore because I don't like that. But we established that through sheer force. Not through morality. I don't know. Is that really the only reason why we did it? 
Just the only, for sheer force? The only reason that why we did it? I mean, is that the only reason why we came to... I mean, let's just... That's not why we did it. That's how we did it. Yeah, but but the why is also important, too. The why is because the England sucks. <laughs> <laughs> and and so does religious tyranny, right? Yeah, uh-huh. And so does the idea that I can't pick and choose whether I'm going to worship a Catholic, or worship as a Catholic, or as a Church of England, which you know became Anglican, which became Episcopalian, which you know all, on down the line, mm-hmm. right? And so part of the major shift from one continent to the next was about the idea of having religious freedom, which I am all in favor of. Oh, for sure. Yeah, you know, you worship whoever you want. Mm-hmm. That that's absolutely fine with me, but. I think, you know, circling back to this, this idea of morality, it seems to hold more water in my mind where there would be an objective moral lawgiver, right? As in someone outside of you and me has to determine what's right and what's wrong. Now, most Christians would probably agree that the Bible is the objective moral standard. Well, I would disagree with that. I would say that most Christians believe in the New Testament being the moral standard, but throw out most of the Old Testament. Some of the which way, you know, eye for an eye, you know, and so, yeah, I'll, I'll go with you on that one. Just in, in, let's just say an objective moral standard is in the Bible somewhere. Somewhere. Okay. Let's just say that for the sake of this conversation at this point. Ugh. Okay. Okay. I'll that, with that, it. That's what, that's what Christians believe. Yeah, yeah. Okay. We'll just land there. Yeah. yeah. That, that there is an objective moral fabric in life and it's found in scripture somewhere. Mm-hmm. What happens with that is now we run to this book for moral, moral challenges. Let's just take the Roe v. Wade mm-hmm. conversation. To know the background and history of the pro-choice movement. Uh-huh. Right? I mean, Margaret Sanger was a, a racist. Okay. And created Planned Parenthood for a population control for African Americans. Mm-hmm. That's very well documented. I mean, you're welcome to dig on that if you sure. like. But um, that's where it came from. And to me, with the Roe v. Wade thing going down, it, the one thing I think it did for us as Christians mm-hmm. is it's going to make us put our money where our mouth is. Because you going to adopt? Uh, I mean, anything and everything. Like, as in... Not only do we have to pour more resources into adoption, we have to figure out why it takes years and years and years to happen. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know why that is. I don't know why it is either. It I, seems like a bad system. It, I, I, but I think there's there's safeguards in place that I think are, are either way too safe or not safe enough because we hear stories all the time about bad things happening through adoption and foster care and all that mm-hmm. other stuff. But we also hear good stories, so let's let's kind of offset that. Then I think you also have to, as Christians, have to believe in fostering a whole lot more than we actually foster. So the foster care system needs help. Mm-hmm. Group homes, which are used to be called orphanages now, but yeah. group homes need more resources and more help. You also need more crisis pregnancy centers. You also need better access to health care. I mean, all of this stuff is on the board. So if anything, when Christians ask for Roe v. Wade to be struck down, really we put more onus on us, which mm-hmm. I'm okay with that. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I have no problem giving resources to any of those. Mm-hmm. I think all those are good things. So, as a person that is pro-life, uh-huh. for the reasons that I believe every human being is special, mm-hmm. according to this view, according to what Scripture says about the image of God, okay, I think that's worthy of protecting. Now, am I going to shoot somebody or blow up a, an abortion clinic over it? No. You know, because I, I think God has a way of working this stuff out that I trust God will. I, I can disagree with people and yeah. say, this is why. But at the end of that conversation, we're still going to be friends. Okay, so you think that objectively, the Bible's objective morals, and you can use the Bible to argue against Roe v. Wade, right? That's um, 
conceptually. Or you I can think, use the Bible to argue against abortion, right? Yeah, I mean, conceptually, I think that, I think that's very clear in Scripture that humanity is special. But and, I think that it's clear in Scripture that sometimes it's okay to kill babies and pregnant women. Uh, oh, because you saw it in one place? Uh, I've got several passages written down here. Uh, Psalms 137, 9, 1 Samuel 15, Exodus 12, Isaiah 13, Hosea 13, Numbers 31, Matthew 5, Hebrews 13. Uh, some of these. Uh, now go and smite Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and spare not, but slay both man and woman and suckling. Meaning, what, meaning baby, yeah. Yep. What is context there? God thinks it's okay to kill babies in that context because he thinks but that the parents the were evil. what's the context of the passage? I, I don't have it in front of me right well, now. We, and here's something, here's something I'll help you with. But you think that it, there's context where it's okay to kill babies. Here's something I'll help you with. Mm-hmm. You, we can't pluck verses out of anything or pluck passages out of anything without seeing it in its context in order to help determine what it actually means. Okay, that's fine. I mean, we can look these up and go through the context. Sure. But... Uh, the, it, you're saying that there's a context where it's okay to kill babies. No, I'm saying that's what God ordered at that particular time. Because it was okay to kill babies in that time. But that's you're also talking about war. You're talking about an issue of... So you think in war, right now, if we go to war, it's okay to just have a burned earth policy and kill every man, woman, and child? I didn't say that. Well, I'm asking you. Uh, are you? Because it sounds like you're putting words in my mouth. I'm asking you, is that what you believe? You're pulling out one verse of context and trying to apply it to an entire belief system. Yes. Out of context. We can apply the context to it. I've got sure. the passage. Just names right here. I didn't write them next to the actual passages. But, uh, I mean, if you look up... Let's see. All you have to look up is infanticide in the Bible. And there's this great list on a King James Version website... It would have to be the King James, wouldn't it? Uh-huh. Because <laughs> that's so easy to read. I mean, I've got it written down in ESV. I laugh because that's the version that a lot of us cut our teeth on, and we really can't understand much about it. Yeah. Because we just don't talk that way anymore. All right, Psalms 137.9. I actually know the context for this one. It has to do with God's going to punish Babylon so hard that happy shall be he that taketh and dasheth thy little ones against the stones. That's a lament of the exiles. But is this not poetic literature? Okay, it's poetic. And I'm so in poetry is everything literal in the Bible. You, you, you do not have a literalist view of the Bible only when I'm looking at a literalist passage. I mean, because if, if we're at hundred percent literalist, then we'd all be walking around with one eye. Wouldn't we maybe less? I've never taken anyone's eye out. Uh, well, I've never taken my own out because it's caused me to sin. Didn't Jesus say that? If you say so. Yeah, he did. He said, if your right eye causes you to sin, then pluck it out. Okay. So I understand the difference between poetic and figurative. Okay. So you're saying that metaphorically you'd be happy if you dashed a baby against a rock. <laughs> I don't know how you could say metaphorically in that sentence. I don't know either. <laughs> I'm saying this looks like, I mean, Psalms is poetic, wouldn't you say? So you think it's hyperbole? Psalms is poetic, wouldn't okay. you say? Wouldn't you say? Sure. Because, I mean, there are there's a poetic section of the Bible. Yes. 
Right. Proverbs. Psalms. Proverbs is more uh, like wisdom, a wisdom book than yeah. a poetry book. But if we read it in Hebrew, you could almost see the rhyming effect of it in some cases. Okay. Not everyone, but it is wisdom literature. I'll, I'll go with you there. Yeah. But there is some poetry to this. But in Psalms, you'd actually hear a beat to it. Uh-huh. Like iambic pentameter is, is a very popular beat for music, right? Sure. And that's what you would feel if you read through this. Now, understanding that this is poetic, uh-huh. what are we really getting at here? We'd have to do some digging on this one to find. I mean, this is obviously talking about a lament for exile, so I'm, I'm guessing... Yeah, we're talking about Babylon here. Uh-huh. So we're talking about a time period in which the Jews were being exiled. Right. This was not a happy time for the Jews. No, it was not a happy time. <laughs> you know, for God's own people uh-huh. that have strayed away from him that are dealing with a Babylonian captor in which God actually told the people, if you don't do what I'm asking you to do, you will be captured. Right. So I'm wondering in the poetic nature of this, the daughter of Babylon doomed to destruction, happy is the one who pays you back what you have done to us. Right. It's about it getting back at Babylon by killing their babies. Yes. Because fairly certain Jewish babies were killed at that particular time as well, right? So eye for an eye, kill their babies? Well, we are Old Testament here, right? And but, we established that there was something new that, that happened in the old, in, uh, from the old to new in terms of grace, right? But you said objective morals in I the did. Bible. I did. And this is also one person writing. Asking, it's not one person because I no, got... In Psalm 137. In remember, Psalms, but Remember then I Lord. Got, this is a person talking to God. Remember Lord. This isn't God's decision. This is a person talking to God. Context means everything. Okay, uh, look up Samuel fifteen three. Oh, we're giving up on this one. I mean, I don't really see the argument either way, but I can just make the argument by just going through every single verse that talks about killing babies. Well, is the object to win or is the object to understand? Which one is it? The ar- the object is to make the point that you said the Bible is objectively moral, I and do. you can say that abortion's wrong, and I'm saying that. The Bible's not objectively moral because you can use the Bible to argue either way that abortion's okay. This isn't the same abortion you and I are talking about today. I think killing babies is killing babies. This isn't the same abortion that you and I are talking about today. Because in this particular instance, you've got babies, well, that particular part maybe. So not, it's, not, it's definitely not the same. This is an actual war-torn idea in Psalm 137. And I'm, I'm guessing in, in 1 Samuel we'd find the same thing, depending upon what chapter and verse you pick out. But here's, yeah, so I, I don't think we're talking about the same things. I don't understand. Because I think you're talking about retribution and, and war activity in the Old Testament, obviously, when, when there's babies involved being killed in that particular capacity. Uh-huh. And I think abortion now, sitting in a doctor's clinic, getting an abortion and asking for the procedure, paying for the procedure, is not the same as that child being smashed against a rock. In some ways, it's not as bad as getting smashed against a rock. In some ways, it's definitely even more evil. Is it? Have you ever seen a saline abortion i haven't i've heard about it i don't want to watch it but i also don't want to watch a (laughs) baby get dashed against a rock oh i'm with you on both cases on both scenarios okay i'm glad yeah yeah. because i'm a i'm not a psychotic killer yeah but b i i don't think either one is good okay but i think 
for whatever reason, Psalm 137, this is, a, this is someone talking to God about this. Did that actually happen? We just do more digging on that Babylonian context to find out which one we're talking about in which particular area. I don't know historically, but Psalms is poetic in its nature. Okay, Psalms is. Yes. Yeah. So depends on where we go from here as far as, and we got to remember context here in every single passage we bring up. Uh-huh. Because that's important. Just like yeah. I showed you from Psalms, context is important. I don't think the context changes the fact that he's talking about killing babies. Well, in that particular psalm, he's saying, remember this. You know, God, remember this happened to us, and this is the retribution I'd love for you to pour out on them. Uh-huh. Well, God's the one that takes vengeance according to Scripture, not us. He tells us to do what? As Christians, he tells us to love people. Mm-hmm. And love has boundaries, and you can tell people, no, this is, uh, this is enough. Mm-hmm. It's part of the reasons why I like the woman's right to say no. No means no. and Because, uh-huh. no, that's enough. And so... Well, on that, if we want to talk about, you know, women's right to say no and rape, what's the penalty for raping somebody in the Old Testament? Do you know? Uh, it was pretty severe, I'm pretty sure. It's, you have to pay 50 shekels as a dowry to the dad, and then you can marry the woman. You have to marry her. I could pull up the passage. Yeah, but then we're also talking about historical context where women weren't really viewed very highly. Man, I'm glad some of that's changed. But, like, God's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. God is, but human culture isn't. But God made that law. Was it law? Are we talking Leviticus here? I'm talking Old Testament law here. Yeah, are we talking Leviticus here? Or what are we talking about? Uh, Leviticus or one of the one of the Pentateuch. I got. I'm, I'm sorry to cut it short, brother. I got about another five more minutes. Is that okay? Yeah, man, you're good. If okay. you want to, we can wrap it up. Uh, yeah, why don't we do that right now if that's okay? And yeah. We'll, and we'll pick up right here next time. And maybe between now and next time, you can send me some questions. I'll send you some questions too. Okay. I'll give you another book recommendation. Uh, Misquoting Jesus by Bart D. Ehrman. It goes into uh, textual criticism of the New Testament pat, uh, manuscripts. If you want to check that out. Okay. Uh, it's at the Athens Public Library. That's where I borrowed it from. That was a pretty decent introduction, I think. Yeah, man. You got any uh, anything to add on real quick before we finish up? Um, let's see. No, I'm going to think on that. Like I said, I'll, I'll probably just email you a list. I'll get, I'll exchange email addresses yeah, after yeah. this, and, and, and I'll, I'll email you some stuff, and we'll just kind of go from there. Okay, man. Right. Uh, yeah, thanks for meeting with me, and uh, I'll uh, let you know when this is uh, posted.